Okay. So. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. I don't know if the microphone is on right now. Um, okay. So let us begin now. Okay, welcome. Thanks for coming out on this lovely night. This is uh, part of the University Public Lectures Series. And as I always do when welcoming people, I ask you to please set your phone or pager to a setting that makes me unaware that you own it. That would be really nice. Thanks very much. So um, I'm Sam Wong, and I'm Chair of Public Lectures, also Professor of Molecular Biology and Neuroscience. And it's a pleasure to welcome someone very, very loosely in my own discipline for this lecture series. So um, thanks for coming out tonight. Our guest tonight, of course, is Eric Lander. And he is a speaker in the Lewis Clark Vinuxum Lecture Series, which was founded in 1912 with a bequest from the will of Lewis Clark Vinuxum from the great class of 1879. Oh. And uh, at least half of the income of this foundation is, used to, for a series, is to be used for a series of public lectures on subjects of scientific interest. And I just want to give you a sense of who's given this in the past. Uh, lectures have included Edwin Hubble on the Explo Exploration of Space, James Conant on the mobilization of American scientists for the war, Carl Sagan, Doug Melton speaking on stem cells, Marsha Angel on healthcare, and recently Martin Chalfie on the subject of green fluorescent protein, which believe me is an extremely important topic. Um, and uh, it really is. Vinuxum uh, <laughs> pursued a career in insurance, eventually insur specializing in insurance law. Now tonight, Professor Lander will be uh, introduced by my colleague, Professor Leonid Krugliak, uh, professor Krugliak is professor in Princeton's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and also in the Lewis Sigler Institute for Integrative Genomics. Good evening. It is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Eric Lander. Microphone. Uh, louder. Okay. Eric is the founding director of the Broad Institute. He is also professor of biology at MIT professor of systems biology at the Harvard Medical School, and member of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research. Um, Eric serves as the chair of President Obama's Council of, Science, of Advisors on Science and Technology. Eric was one of the principal leaders of the Human Genome Project, and he and his colleagues are now at the forefront of using these findings to explore the molecular mechanisms underlying the basis of human disease. Eric earned his BA in mathematics from Princeton in 1978, and his PhD in mathematics from Oxford in 1981 as a Rhodes Scholar. He was an assistant and associate professor of managerial economics at the Harvard Business School from 1981 to 1990. Remarkably, during this, time, <laughs> during this time, he became interested in biology and together with our own David Botstein, wrote groundbreaking papers laying out the research agenda for human genetics for the next 15 or 20 years. Um, Eric became a Whitehead Fellow and subsequently founded the Whitehead Institute MIT Center for Genome Research. Eric has received many honors and awards, including the Woodrow Wilson Prize for Public Service from Princeton, and recently shared the Albany Prize in Biomedical Research with David Botstein and Francis Collins. He is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and the Institute of Medicine. On a personal note, Eric was my postdoctoral mentor at the Whitehead. Uh, working with him was really transformational and laid the foundation for my own research career. So it's a special pleasure to have Eric here today to tell us the latest about the secrets of the human genome. Well, thank you, Leonid. Um, all right, so what's the plan? 
This is a very diverse audience. I know, because I'm looking around, I recognize professors of molecular biology, students in molecular biology. There are students from Princeton High School. Where are you, the students from Princeton High School? Yeah. I understand I am worth class credit if you write something about this. Um, and many people from, from uh, Princeton and the surrounding areas. Um, I'm going to try to do something a little challenging. I want to really, really, really give you a sense of the discoveries, the feeling, the pace of what's going on with respect to the Human Genome Project. Now, that's challenging to do because I could either give you the cartoon version that sort of covers up all the details and things and says this is very exciting, or I could tell you about what's really going on and what excites us as scientists. I'm going to try to do the latter. So I recognize that we have scientists, non-scientists, et cetera. I'm going to try to actually really describe the most exciting things that have happened in the last, oh, 10 or 15 years with respect to the Human Genome Project. And I guarantee some bits you won't understand the details, and it doesn't matter. It's really to get a sense for the cumulative nature of what's been going on, the kinds of questions that are being asked, and some of it, you know, some of it's very easy to understand. Some of it, you know, might be only for the aficionados. But I've got to say, we are living through right now one of the most remarkable times in any scientific field. One of the really remarkable revolutions. And that's what I want to tell you about. Because it's a Princeton lecture, I have also inserted five specific Princeton references. And <laughs> Somebody keep count, okay? So all right, I want to give you a sense. Oh, we need to turn that down. Lighting, overhead projection. Is it working? Overhead projection. Make that one go away. Someone just shoot that one. That's good. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. All right. So I mean this, and people throw in revolution in this, revolution in that. What are they talking about? And I mean this in a very precise sense. I mean it that once in the history of every scientific discipline, you get to see the big picture. You go from having a fragmentary sense of knowledge, a bit here, a bit there, unconnected, to seeing the whole. Geography. There was a point that this was our map of the world, about circa 1350 or so. This was a, uh, the best description we had of, of, of the world. You can see up there, there's no pointer, but you know, there's Europa. This is Africa here. It's obviously missing some bits. This is Frigida down here. Um, you know, it's not, it's not entirely wrong, but you wouldn't want to sail west based on this map. <laughs> this is, of course, the picture we have today. Landsat imagery, GPS coordinates on your iPhone down to a couple of meters. And you know, there, there are no more uncharted desert islands anywhere. And I'd put to you that you can't even get out of the worldview of this. It's not possible for a person today to imagine what it was like to live in a world when you didn't know what would happen if you sailed west. That view is no longer available to us. That's how completely our view has changed by having the big picture. Chemistry to it. It wasn't so long ago that chemistry was alchemy. People going around collecting bits of matter here and there, studying their properties, knowing they could always go out tomorrow and collect more bits of matter with more properties, and just go on and on and on like that. 
Then along in 1869 comes Mendeleev and says, let's focus on the elements, the simplest bits there, and, and they can be organized in this table. When Mendeleev drew his famous periodic table, there were actually about 25 holes in it. It took 20-odd years to fill in all the holes. But by the time the dust settled, this became the foundation for all chemistry. All the high school students know it's in the front of your chemistry textbook. And I would put to you that you guys can't imagine what it would be like to learn chemistry without knowing the periodic table. And it's not just I mean, it's useful for practical things. It gave rise to whole industries. And it's useful for theoretical things. Understanding those columns, of course, give rise to subatomic structure. So all of that is pretty cool. That's what's happening in biology right now. Around 1950-ish, middle of the century, 1953, Crick and Watson told us the structure of DNA as this long, double helical molecule of sequences of letters, A's, T's, C's, and G's. And somehow, and from previous experiments, people knew that hereditary information was encoded in this DNA sequence. Of course, they couldn't read a letter of it. They could only infer that the DNA sequence encoded heredity, but they knew in principle the order of the letters mattered. Well, within 50 years, the scientific community has gone from knowing that it's there in principle to reading it out in practice. And you could download it on your iPhone if you wanted to, the sequence of all of those letters. Now, this is, of course, not the end of the story. It's just the beginning, because we're in the midst of this kind of transformation. We don't just need the sequence of the letters. We need to know how to read it. We need to be able to parse it up into the genes, the portions that encode, say, proteins in your body, hemoglobins and collagens and keratins and zillions of proteins and things. We need to know where the regulatory instructions are. We need to know which genes turn on when, which genes turn on after you've had lunch, which genes turn on when you're infected, all these sorts of things. We need to know. We need to know not just the gene sequence in general, but all the variation in the gene sequence in the human population. We need to have tools for turning on and off each of those genes. And onward, this is a shopping list, the kind of little yellow sticky that people in my field have on the refrigerator of you know, the things we have to get before we're done, all of those kinds of catalogs and tools. But when that dust settles, I'll put to you, maybe sometime 2025 or something like that, the students of 2025 will not be able to imagine what it was like to live back in the benighted ages of the 1980s or so, when ancient molecular biologists went out into the jungle with their machetes looking for genes <laughs> and things, slashing through the forest, you know, sometimes coming back triumphantly, gene in hand, often never being heard from again. Um, it's a different world. Now, but I want to explain to you how it is that you study a molecule this big. And the genome is very big. It's three billion letters. Um, it's also, if we think about it just in terms of molecules that people study, here's a comparison. An amino acid, the building block of a protein, is 200 atomic mass units, 200 Daltons. Hemoglobin in your blood is a protein composed of those amino acids, and it's 20,000 Daltons. And people worked really hard, not that, you know, several decades ago to work out the structure of hemoglobin. The ribosome, the factory that translates the RNA messages made by the DNA into the proteins, is 2 million Daltons. And 
just recently working out the structure of the ribosome and understanding all that. I was that the human genome, just for reference, is two trillion Daltons. That's a big number. How do you study two trillion Daltons? Some 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 atomic thing, some molecular thing that big. It's of course not one molecule. There are 23 chromosomes, so it's 23 molecules. But oh well, I, I approximate here. Well, like anything else, if you're going to study something that big, like with the Earth, you need a map. In fact, you need many maps. And different disciplines have different approaches in our field, the field of genetics and the study of genomes, the sequences of, of genomes uh, and, the, and the functions of genomes. It turns out to be all about building maps. So I'm going to talk entirely tonight about maps, how you make maps, how you read maps. Um, some of the maps will make a lot of sense, some of the set maps may not make any sense, but I'll give you all the sense because it's all about maps. Let me start, though, with the concept of mapping rare genetic diseases. You have some rare genetic disease in the population, I don't know, Huntington's disease. It's transmitted in a family as a dominantly inherited trait from dad to child to child. How are you going to find the gene for Huntington's disease? The traditional approach in the 20th century was to guess or attempt to be lucky. Uh, those are not very systematic approaches. But people would look at genetic diseases and try to divine somehow that, ah, that person who is mentally retarded has too much phenylalanine in their urine. Who'd have thought to look? But they have too much phenylalanine in their urine. They probably have a defect in some enzyme that breaks down phenylalanine, and that causes their mental retardation. Very good if you can guess that, but nothing systematic about it. The notion that you might be able to systematically map genetic diseases, rare genetic diseases, without knowing in advance what they are, like what biochemical function, that notion is our first example of mapping and our first Princeton reference, because <laughs> exhibit number one, David Botstein, recognized around 1978 and published in 1980 that there was a totally simple generic way for mapping the location, finding the location of any genetic disease, simple one gene, monogenic genetic disease, and it was this. It was, look in a family, here's dad, he's affected. Four of the eight children have the disease. They're filled in circles there, this is a pedigree. And look at different places up and down the human genome. I'll use my little pointer here. There we go, that, that's working. So at one spot, one of the three billion letters, dad inherited an A from his mom and a C from his dad. And notice that dad passed on the C to all the children who happened to have gotten the disease and he passed on his A to all the children who didn't get the disease. That's, that's a little fishy. There's a good correlation between passing on the letter and passing on the disease. Now, one family is not enough, but if you saw that in two families, three families, ten families, you'd eventually become convinced that that was no accident. And the letter, the A or the C, must live nearby on the chromosome to whatever is causing the disease because they're being co-transmitted, co-inherited together. Genetic recombination occurs when you, when, uh, you have children, and exchanges betwe between chromosomes occur. But if things are right nearby, they co-transmit, they're co-inherited at a high frequency. 
So doing this, this basic notion, leads you to be able to map a gene for Huntington's disease. And indeed, within four years after David's proposal, the gene for Huntington's disease was shown to be on chromosome number four. That I remember the day that David, walked, David called me into his office, closed the door in whispers, Eric, the gene for cystic fibrosis is on chromosome seven. I remember this, you closed the door and, and everything, because it was a big deal and nobody knew. It was a big deal. Now, that spelling difference was still pretty far away. It co-transmitted, it was correlated, but you know, only 85% correlated in its transmission. It was still 15% of the time being transmitted separately, meaning it was some distance away and genetic recombination was happening. But within a few months, there was a, one that was 99% correlated. 99% correlated. Only 1% of the time did it genetically recombine. That sounds really good. Till I tell you that 1% that of the time meant about a million letters away. And a million letters in those ancient days was a lot because you typically worked with DNA at lengths of about 10,000 letters. And it's a lot of 10,000s to get to a million. So knowing that there was a genetic marker that was pretty close, in some sense, to the cystic fibrosis gene, one still had to use that to get the next piece of DNA. And you did that by making a radioactive piece of DNA, washing it over a million different possibilities till it stuck to one of them. Use that to get the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. This is called in literature chromosomal walking. I come from Brooklyn. We call it chromosomal schlepping. You would schlep along the chromosome. And eventually, four years, four and a half years, a couple tens of millions of dollars, and about 100 people's worth of work, the gene was found for cystic fibrosis. And this is it. Uh, if you look closely, it is a boring string of A's, T's, C's, and G's, and it encodes the protein for cystic fibrosis. Uh, I call your attention to the little red box, because if I blow that up, we blow that up. Those three letters, C, T, T, encode the 508th amino acid, a phenylalanine of that protein, and it's missing in the vast majority of people who have cystic fibrosis. That's the cause of cystic fibrosis. And this is very important because if we went around up and down the aisles and had everybody spit into a cup, different cups, please, we could, we could take it down to Lewis Sigler and do a DNA amplification reaction. And if we had set this up just right before the end of the lecture, in principle, tell you, you know, or send you an email tomorrow as to who's a carrier for cystic fibrosis. Now, of course, we couldn't do that because there are ethical issues in doing such a thing, but they're not really technical issues in doing such a thing. Technically, it's very easy. But there are, of course, counseling issues and all that. So I joke about actually sending you that information. But you can know, you can do genetic diagnostics that way. In addition, you can take the sequence of this gene and toss it into the computer and ask the computer, hey, computer, ever seen any genes like this before? And the computer will compare it to all other sequences that had been known at the time. And the computer says, yes, this looks like you know, several dozen other genes that encode proteins that sit in the membrane and transport things back and forth. Congratulations, you probably found a transporter. That's pretty good, because in science, you have to work really hard to come up with a hypothesis. Testing the hypothesis is work, too. But I got to say, coming up with the right hypothesis is actually pretty hard. And here, you get handed a hypothesis on a silver platter. It looks a lot like a transporter. It probably is a transporter. Go test if it's a transporter. Pretty good. All of that comes. And notice, no input of information about the disease, merely the inheritance pattern 
gets you to a region, the region gets you to a gene, a gene gets you to a mutation, the sequence gets you to a possible function. It's a pretty good return on investment, if you ask me. Um, now, people at the time were saying, great, okay, I can try random markers and, and see if this random marker is gonna be linked to my gene. If that one is, I'll try another random marker. But actually, David in 1980 said specifically, not just that you could use these spelling differences, but you could get very systematic about them and build a map of the spelling differences that could be used to trace inheritance, what we call a genetic map. And that genetic map, David described in that paper in 1980, he said, we should make a genetic map of spelling differences up and down the whole human genome so we could be systematic about finding the gene for any particular disease. Within seven years, such a first rudimentary map was made. David and I both collaborated with others on this paper. And it's a, it's a like, hilarious map. It only has 403 markers. But it was a first map of the human genome. It was kind of cool. And within three years of that point, a whole human genome project was launched with the notion that, of course, we had to do vastly better than this. Um, we needed to have genetic markers up and down the chromosomes. And we needed to have, you know, instead of all this schlepping through the DNA, we needed all that DNA organized. And instead of the tedious reading out of the individual letters, we just needed all that done already. And that was the idea. This notion of making maps has pretty much been all I do since then. Um, but there's a lot of kinds of maps. And I'm going to tell you about the different kinds of maps and what you can do. There are these genetic maps you can use to trace inheritance. When we then need to chromosomally schlep along and have all the pieces of DNA, we instead would rather have a physical map, which means all the pieces of DNA. Then we'd like to know all the letters. That's a sequence map. Um, I'm going to skip over this one for a moment. But within that, we would like to know, where are all the genes? How do I parse all these letters up into genes? And what parts has evolution conserved? And oh, I'm going to even tell you about the epigenome, something that sits on top of the genome and, and organizes and structures the way the genome is read out. And how does it vary between people? And which are the, which are the variations associated with disease? And how have, these association, how have these variations in the genome been selected by evolution? And how are they changed in cancer? And for every one of these problems, evolutionary history to other animals, recent evolution in our species, cancer, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there's a map for that. I guess, it's, I guess there's an app for that. But here, there's a map for that, <laughs> right? So there's a map for that. Um, so let me tell you. Back? Uh, it offended the computer. There we go. Now, some little window came up to, and asking me to click on it, so I did. All right. It knows things. All right. So, anyway, the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project itself was really the first big organized project to make maps. It was a cool project. It was to make these genetic maps, these physical maps, these sequence maps, these gene lists, and to make all this information freely, completely available to anybody, even people in high school. In fact, especially people in high school, because those are the people who are going to do the most creative things with it. It required changing the whole way we do biology, from standing behind plastic shields with radioactive nucleotides to doing things with robots and computers and all sorts of things. And so 
the whole way that the Genome Project was taken on involved lots of changes in technology. It involved changes in the culture of our community, international collaborations amongst different countries. The Genome Project was, was six countries, United States, United Kingdom, France, Germany, Japan, China, 20 different centers around the world. Our little dot is this yellow one here. I'm proud, you know, we did about a third of the sequence of the human genome there. There were big centers, little centers, but everybody working toward a common goal of getting this information out there. And in February of 2001, about, about nine years ago or so, a rough draft sequence of the human genome was published. It's a rough draft because uh, it had, I don't know, about 10% of it missing, about 250,000 errors in it. But on the other hand, it's still 90% of the sequence of the human genome. It was not bad. Um, but the international consortium continued in its course, and within another couple, several years, April 2003, we were able to report a finished sequence of the human genome, where finished is a technical term, meaning not finished, but, um, <laughs> but meaning as much as can be done with modern technology, about 302 gaps remaining and things like that, a little less than 1% of the sequence missing. But anyway, you have to have a goal, and the goal was to do everything you could do with existing technology, and that was the finished sequence. And we kind of picked April 2003 because that was exactly 50 years after the Crick and Watson paper had been published, and we thought that would be cool. So everybody agreed to get it done by then, and people worked really hard to do it. Now, the point was, Back in the 1980s, when people were looking for the cystic fibrosis gene, it took forever to find this gene. It cost a lot of money. The point was, if you had all of this, could you do it faster? And the answer is absolutely. With the sequence of the human genome, the process of finding disease genes, the rare Mendelian disease genes, has just exploded. Before the Human Genome Project, about 70 had been found. Today, about 2,600 have been found by the basic method that David had laid out. Uh, but with these much more powerful systematic tools to make it fast. And these days, if cystic fibrosis for some reason were, were not cloned, you know, it would be a perfectly reasonable project for somebody to do you know, in, in the molecular biology department. It wouldn't even be worth a senior thesis, right? It'd be a straightforward kind of project. You could do something, you could do a good JP or something on, on that. Um, it's a doable project. I don't know, maybe. You could probably you could do it as a project lab or something. It's not that hard to do anymore. But now, or won't be. Now, I've got to give you a sense, though, of how it's been changing since then. All the work to get that sequence involved sequencing 3 billion bases. Now, you had to sequence them maybe 10 times over to get it all glued together. So maybe collecting 30 billion bases of information. Let me give you a sense of what's gone on in the past several years with regard to getting sequence information the new world of DNA sequencing, just by comparison. All sorts of new machines using new, bio, new, new technologies, new chemistries for DNA sequencing, exploiting optical techniques, doing things in a massively parallel fashion, putting down many spots on a slide and using tricks to sequence them all in parallel has led to this. This is a graph that I was very proud of of the output of our genome center at the Broad Institute. In 1991, we produced ourselves almost half a billion bases of sequence. And up and up and up and up, and by 2006, we had produced, per year, we were producing 70 billion bases of sequence. So now, I'm gonna add two more years to the graph, keep your eye on the blue dot, 
We'll go out to 2008. This is what the graph looks like. Uh, this is up to 1,700 billion bases of sequence. Let me add another year. There we go. Now it's up to 20,000 billion bases of sequence. And um, that's up to 2010. The projection for the end of the year, and I suspect this will turn out to be conservative, will be 100,000 billion bases of sequence. Um, I remember the day that there was an entire international celebration of the Human Genome Project when we collectively reached our first billion bases. It was called the Billion Base Bash. And we had video links all over the world to celebrate the billion bases. At that rate, I calculated we could do a party every four minutes now at our center. <laughs> um, cost. You are impressed with how costs go down. You know, if we have any computer scientists here, Moore's Law about how costs decrease. Well, this is how costs have decreased in roughly the last decade since the Human Genome Project. Uh, we've got over here the cost of sequencing a million bases went from here to there, and this is a log scale. Every line is a factor of 10. This is a 100,000-fold decrease in cost, actually projected to December of this year, because it makes a nice round number there. I, I think there are few things in the world that decrease by 100,000-fold in cost in a decade. This is the only one I know. This, by the way, over here is Moore's Law. That's Moore's Law there. Moore's Law is still impressive on a log scale, but this is, this is quite remarkable. So with that, all sorts of data collection we never imagined possible. All sorts of maps can now be constructed. Now, some of the maps I'll tell you about started before this. They're getting faster and faster and faster because of it. So I'm going to go off and tell you about maps. I warn you in advance, some of the maps will make sense. Some of the maps, don't worry if they don't. There'll be another one coming. You'll get the sense of it here. But I want to give kind of a range of different maps of things. So let me start with mapping evolution. It turns out that evolution is an incredibly powerful laboratory tool. Um, this is very curious because, of course, the majority of the country doesn't believe in it, but it's a very powerful tool that we use every day in the laboratory. Um, why it works, if it's not true, I don't know. Anyway, don't. So we won't go there in this lecture, which will concentrate solely on the science. Um, so if I give you a chunk of the human genome, this is a chunk of human genome, the first thing you'll note is it's really boring. Um, how are you going to figure out what letters do what and which letters matter? I mean, how do you know that this A over there does anything? Well, look, the only intellectually honest way to do it would be to change the A to something else and see if it makes a difference. Then you know it mattered. You know, change the A to a G, grow up a human being with that sequence, see if it matters. <laughs> this runs into two problems. One, it's wholly unethical. Two. It's completely impractical. You can't get grants to do that sort of thing because it's too long. It just takes too long. You know, your children would have to score the experiment and all that. So anyway, for a lot of reasons, but, but the idea is right, that if you could change the letters, you'd really know. So only if, you know, if only somebody had thought to start this experiment a long time ago so we could read the data now, that would be brilliant. But of course, that's what evolution does. Every day, bases change by random mutation. Sometimes they are deleterious and selected against. Sometimes they're advantageous. Sometimes they are just completely neutral. In fact, an experiment was started about 100 million years ago. It's called mammals. There was an ur-mammal, an ancestral mammal. 
It had a sequence, and it underwent mutations. Those bits of the genome that matter to all mammals can't change very much. Those bits that don't matter are free to change. And so if we simply took the sequence of the human and lined it up against the mouse and the dog and other things, we would shed light on the bits that evolution doesn't really let us change very much and the bits that evolution couldn't care less about. And that's really very valuable for shining spotlights. So we could make a map of evolutionary conservation. Now, of course, to do it, we need the sequence of all these beasts. We need the sequence of the mouse. So the first thing after the sequence of the human was to get the sequence of the mouse. Then to try to line up the sequence of the mouse to the, to the sequence of the human. And you can take a stretch of a million bases of the human genome here and find the corresponding million bases of the mouse genome here. And every little sequence here, or not every, many little sequences here match sequences in the same exact order, up and down, and down. And of course, the reason this is is that this stretch of million bases of the human and the stretch of million bases of the mouse correspond to an ancestral million bases in the ancestral mammal 100 million years ago. And you can read it clear as a bell that, that, that these two bits came from the same bit. So if you did that, you can make a lookup table of every bit of the human corresponds to a certain bit of the mouse. Every bit of the mouse corresponds to a certain bit of the human. Well, almost every bit. There are little bits that get scrambled and it's hard to tell. But you can make a little lookup table. Then you can go back into those little regions and you can look really up close and say which exact letters or chunks of 20 letters or 100 letters are very well preserved by evolution. And you line up those languages, mouse language and human language and dog language, and it's like, it's like a Rosetta Stone. It turns out, of course, we don't speak initially any of those languages, but it's the similarity amongst those languages that still lets us pick stuff out. It's as if I give you these two sequences. This is a cartoon. You know, the human genome is not written in English letters, but just for a cartoon. And I say, you know, can you see what evolution has preserved here? And while you may not immediately pick it out, computer algorithms are very good at zipping along and spotting this is hidden, right? You can do that. So, you know, computer algorithms are very good at, at doing that sort of thing. So what we need is we need the mouse and the rat and the dog. So we got the mouse and the rat and the dog. Those were the first things that got sequenced there. And with those four mammals, us and them, you could pick out a lot of things. And as we got excited about what we could pick out, we needed more because we wanted even more sensitivity. It's a question of signal from noise. The more we read of evolution's lab notebooks, the more sensitively we can pick out stuff. And so a proposal got made by a bunch of us to sequence 24 different mammals. And they bought it. They said, OK. The NIH said, do it. And in fact, by this point, there's about 36 vertebrate genomes that have been sequenced so far. And that number will just grow tremendously with increased sequencing power. And you start lining it up. So I promise you secrets. What are some of the secrets of the human genome that get revealed here? From this evolutionary analysis, see, now, promise, I'll tell you the secrets. You have to promise not to tell anybody. Otherwise, they're not going to be secrets, OK? So first, there were many fewer protein coding genes than we had ever expected. The official textbook number was that there were going to be 100,000 protein coding genes, genes that encoded different kinds of proteins. Indeed, Wall Street was counting on 100,000 protein-coding genes in the late 90s to justify the stocks of many companies that were off discovering genes, because the official position was there were a lot more to discover, and they would own them. And in fact, there didn't turn out to be that many more. In fact, there were vastly less genes than anybody expected. When we published the Human Genome Sequence paper, 
we could only find about evidence for maybe 30,000, but we felt so squeamish about that that we wrote 30 to 40,000 in the paper to cover ourselves in case we were doing something really stupid. But in fact, we were in the wrong direction because it was less. And in fact, many of the things we thought were genes were really broken genes, detritus of genes. And the number went down and down. And now there is a good solid number based on a really careful analysis I won't go into that says it's about 21,000 protein coding genes in the human genome with certain caveats attached to that number. What's really striking, though, is with so few protein coding genes, you can ask, how much of the genome does evolution care about? Turns out, Evolution cares about 5 or 6 percent of, of the human genome. 5 or 6 percent of those letters are lovingly preserved by evolution, but only 1 percent of those letters encode proteins. Suddenly, that means most of what evolution cares about is not the stuff that encodes the protein. This, again, conflicts with the intro bio course that I taught for 10 years, and I presume the same things were told to students here as well which has the official textbook picture of there's a protein coding gene and a little bit of regulatory information that says when to turn the gene on and off. The picture is backwards, stand it on its head. It's mostly regulatory information or other things like that or non-coding things. And only a minority of it are these proteins. Not only that, if you look at these regulatory things or non-coding things, let's just call them non-coding sequences, things that don't code for proteins, and you ask, where are the ones that evolution has most lovingly preserved? they turn out to clump, to cluster in different places in the genome. And it turns out they cluster particularly in regions of the genome that happen to be pretty poor in genes. The places where these non-coding things are particularly well-preserved and particularly clustered are in gene-poor regions. Now, I don't mean no genes. Typically, one gene. And if you run along here, every one of them has a very early embryonic developmental function. The genes that really evolution has cared so much about with this regulatory information are the things that get your body plan going right in the first place. And I'm just going to zoom in on one of them here. Um, and you can see there's this one gene over here and all of this stuff around it that's controlling when it gets turned on and all that. Indeed, what it suggests is the proteins themselves are not so hard. Getting all the controls just right, that's the hard thing. So then you could ask, um, how does all this stuff get invented? How quickly does it evolve? How much new stuff is, in, is, is, is developed by evolution? Well, if you go out a little bit away from our mammals, placental mammals, and you go off and you sequence kangaroos or things, you can answer that question. Because you look, how much is conserved amongst placental mammals? And how much of that is shared out here with the marsupials? The marsupials are separated by about 90 million years of evolution. That lets us estimate how much stuff evolved in those 90 million years. And the answer is, we're evolving during those 90 million years something like about 16% of all of that important information in our genomes. I'll put it in concrete terms. One nucleotide, one base is being is being innovated, one innovation, one base innovation every four years. That's the rate. That actually corresponds to presidential terms, and so it has occurred to the, <laughs> to the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology that we can advise on one base in the human genome <laughs> to innovate, and we're still debating. But there's, there's really a groundswell for a particular G at the moment. Um, what's very interesting is most of the evolution that distinguishes us 
has been in these non-coding sequences. It's very clear it's mostly been in the non-coding sequences. Indeed, it's disappointing how derivative the, the evolution of protein coding genes is. Not a lot of new invention of protein coding genes going on. A lot of evolution, a lot of innovation in these non-coding sequences. Now I ask you, how do you invent new non-coding sequences? It's a lot of work evolving. You know, you have to have random mutations and some function eventually develop. And suppose I want to control 50 genes across the genome in some new coordinate fashion, get them turned on for some particular occasion. I got to sit around and wait for just the right controls to evolve. This is what the people who sort of worry about evolution and why it can't possibly right, be right, they, they sort of worry it's just never going to happen. Well, we can now go back and look now with the benefit of the marsupials and the placental mammals. It turns out that a tremendous amount of the new stuff that's invented lives in jumping genes, in transposons. To put it briefly, there are sequences that hop around the genome, and there's extraordinarily good evidence that's emerged in the past couple of years that something gets invented once and then distributed around the genome at random, but in some places it's good. But if you're going to invent a 50-base or 100-base regulatory control sequence, why wait for it to randomly evolve over here? Just start sprinkling around the genome and see where it might be useful. And it's very clear that these transposable elements that used to be referred to as junk DNA, parasites, poxes on our houses, might all be, that all, might all be true, but without them, we would be evolving regulatory controls a lot more slowly. So anyway, it's uh, remarkable what kind of things you can learn from evolution. Now, I'm going to mention some other things. You may have heard that it isn't all just the DNA. There are things that sit on top of the DNA. The DNA is wrapped up, and there are proteins that hold the DNA. And the proteins that hold the DNA have little modifications to them and things. And this is called the epigenome. And it's very trendy. There are NPR stories and things like that about the epigenome and stuff like that. Um, whoops. Did it again. It'll be back. Oh, no, now it's not good. There we go. All right. So. Oh, no, no, it's, what did I do now? Oh, it's coming back. Good. The epigenome. So the DNA gets wrapped up in these proteins, and the proteins have little marks put on them. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you what the marks are. They have exciting names like histone 3 lysine 27 trimethylation. <laughs> you, you're invited to forget that, okay? Um, but there are these marks, and the point is, wouldn't it be cool if we could figure out in any given cell type, in your pancreas or in your muscle or in your muscle after you exercise versus before exercise, where are all those controlling marks? Well, until recently, you couldn't do that. But with the power of sequencing now, it turns out to be easy. Make an antibody that recognizes the mark. Use the antibody to pull down all the proteins that are marked like that. Take the DNA that come down with those proteins and sequence it. And that's it. Just basically grab any mark you want, see what DNA comes down with it, and read it on a sequencer. And it lets you then build maps. You can build maps saying, aha, this kind of mark is here, and this kind of mark is there, and that kind of mark is there. And you can build more maps. I like maps. You can build maps of the epigenome. Now, why do you build these maps? You build these maps because all sorts of secrets emerge when you look on the maps. Let me tell you. And again, let's not worry about it. But there's a green mark. It's in green. And a blue mark. It's in blue. It's not really green and blue, but you'll give it to me. There's a green mark that's the beginning of genes that are turned on, and a blue mark that's along the length of the gene that's being copied into an RNA. And then that RNA is being sent off to make a protein. 
This is a particular epigenomic mark that tells you where a gene is. Well, now that we can make these maps cheap and easy, let's look at those maps and see what's there. You look at the maps and you can say, bingo, here's a gene, here's a gene, here's a gene. And then you go back to your catalog that you previously made of all the protein coding genes we know in the human genome. And you cross off everything that's a known protein coding gene. Known, known, new. Hmm, that's interesting, new one. You look at it closely, it can't code for a protein. It has no capacity to code for a protein. Trust me, we can tell. It's what we call something non-coding. And that might not seem so surprising to find an occasional non-coding, but thousands in the last year and a half have been found, about 5,000 large, evolutionarily well-conserved, meaning they must be functional because evolution has kept them around for 100 million years, non-coding genes that just encode RNAs that never become a protein. And there's evidence that what they do is they regulate other genes. Now, I slightly simplify. It's not like these things were not known. There were about a dozen things like this known. Very large RNAs that didn't encode a protein and did something important regulatorily. There was no notion that there were 5,000 of them. There were about 12. One of the earliest goes by the completely obscure name H19. And that is the second Princeton connection, because H19 is due to a Princeton scientist. That's H19. Shirley identified H19 in her lab, one of the very first of what is now clear of a family of thousands and thousands of these large non-coding RNAs. So for those of you who don't know, Shirley does, did other things, you know, whatever, besides being president, in fact. You know, this really important class really goes back to very, very important work of Shirley. Uh, and I cite some early paper here about that says the product of the H19 gene may function as an RNA. And indeed it does. All right, so the, even the epigenome can be read out and all sorts of secrets can be found. Now, there's diseases. Remember I told you there were these diseases. Um, the rare Mendelian diseases, the Huntington's disease, or the cystic fibrosis, or, or uh, you know, achondroplasia, or, or maple syrup urine disease, or, or many, 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 many diseases like this. There's also other diseases. There's diseases like heart attacks, diabetes, asthma, Alzheimer's disease. These are not simple one-gene Mendelian diseases. They're more complex in their inheritance. Can you go back with Botstein kind of thinking and think about how we might use maps to find the basis of these more complex diseases, these more common diseases, the diseases that we all have or will, will get at various times? Um, and the answer is yes. The way you do it is you build a different kind of map. You start by building maps of genetic variation. You ask, if I take any two people in this audience, how different are your genomes? You know, you two. Your genomes are, differ by about one letter in 1,300. I'm going to say one in 1,000 for roundness. One letter in 1,000. 
you're 99.9% identical. Very similar. Of course, you know, one-tenth of a percent out of three billion letters is still three million differences. But that's, now, let's, so we've got to put this in some objective terms. Uh, if I take two chimps, two chimps differ by about twice as much as any two humans. Two orangutans in Southeast Asia differ by about eight times as much as any two humans. You think orangutans all look the same. <laughs> so, they think you all look the same, and they're right. Um, now, turns out we are a very small species. We don't have that much genetic variation. And it's, not, and it's very clear why. We all go back to a pretty small founding population in Africa with an effective population size of about 10,000 people about 3,000 generations ago. And simple population genetic equations will tell you that you can't have that much genetic variation in a little population. Now, wait, wait, you say. We're six billion people. And I say, ah, that's just in the most recent blink of an eye. We've expanded to six billion people so rapidly that evolution has made very little difference to evolution. The mutation rate is sufficiently slow that 95% of all the variation that any of you have is variation that goes back to Africa. Only 5% of the variation that you own is variation that has arisen since the migration out of Africa. So we're walking around with largely ancestral variation like that. Some of that ancestral variation is kind of interesting. Here's two letters on chromosome number 19 in the gene called apolipoprotein E. And if you happen to have the CC spelling here from your mom, and the CC spelling here from your dad, you have about a 60, 70% lifetime risk of Alzheimer's disease. And if you spit in a cup, we can take it back and leave you an email or something like that. This to what, no, no, you can't do that. It's unethical, but it's actually technically not hard to do. Um, there were about a dozen examples of this, of specific common genetic variations that influenced your risks of disease and therefore taught us about causes of disease. A dozen found kind of by accident. Well, occasionally by, by smart looking, um, but mostly by accident. But if you're thinking systematically, if you're thinking like a mapping kind of person, you could say, how many genetic variations could there be anyway? Common genetic variations. You do some arithmetic. I don't know. Actually, Leonid did some arithmetic in a, in a, in a very important paper. He said, I don't know, 10, 10 20 millions, 12 million, some numbers, something, something in that neighborhood of common genetic, it depends on how you define common exactly. Uh, why not just make one very big Excel spreadsheet that has all, let's say, 12 million common genetic variants across the top, and then you just look and you say, let's see, this genetic variant here is more common in people with diabetes than people who don't have diabetes. Oh, and that one here, more common in people with arthritis, and that one here, and more common in people with asthma. And the problem, I mean, and then, you know, you could work out which genetic variants are associated or correlated with, with which genetic diseases. You'd, need to, you'd, of course, need to find all the 12 million variants. Oh, God, even worse than that. You then have to take, like, thousands of people with diabetes and thousands of people without diabetes and test the millions of variants in the thousands of people to get billions of genotypes. And that's the sort of thing that graduate students rebel about because, because of course, you know, they were doing genotypes one at a time, and many of them found it 
you know, difficult to contemplate doing, say, 12 billion of them in order to get their thesis done or something like that. But the great thing about the, about the way the sciences work is in the course of 10 years, it went from being unthinkable to being utterly routine. Genetic catalogs of genetic variants were built, such that there's well more than 10 million genetic variants known on the web. Then it turns out you don't need to use every last genetic variant because the ones that are nearby each other are pretty well correlated. So you can just use a subset if you knew how they were correlated. Oh, but then you'd have to know all the correlations to be able to pick the subset. But you can make a map of correlations. So an idea of, let's make a map of all the correlations of all the variants came up. And within three years, that got done. The international haplotype map of all the correlations, blah, 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 got done. Then you still, even if you can pick the variants, you've got to type, genotype them in the people. Oh, and you can't do it one at a time, but it went from being one at a time to 10 at a time to 1,000 at a time to 10 to, you know, to by 2006, half a million genetic variants getting typed on a single little bit of glass using DNA chips. And then a million, and by, and by later this year, we should have chips with five million. So now suddenly, there's no excuse. You know, you could just, you, you should just do it. Take thousands of people with the disease, thousands of people without. And this is what it felt like. In the year 2000, the number of common genetic variants associated with common disease that had been discovered in that year was one. In 2001, there were two. In 2003, there was one. 2004, nothing. 2005, one. 2006, Oh, five. Now the tools all kick in around this point. 2007 through April, 2007 through August, September, December. Uh, I stopped with this picture, but this is the picture today. 658 genes with genetic variations associated with common diseases and a wide range of common diseases have now been discovered. And it's just starting. There's lists and lists and lists, and all sorts of secrets are emerging. I'll just name two secrets, for example. All sorts of surprises. There's one particular spot in the genome that, that is related to risk for diabetes, and it's also related to risk for early heart attack. And you say, oh, I know why. It must be due to lipids. High lipids are involved in both of those. That particular spot is unrelated to high lipids. So it turns out these are related, but not through lipids. There's Crohn's disease and psoriasis, very different diseases, I think, except there's some place in the genome where the genetic variation that's affected. In fact, in fact, these lists are telling us about pathways in the disease, biology of the disease, in all sorts of surprising ways. And I've got to say, another secret is there's lots more to go, because so far, only the most common genetic variation has been probed. Only things that are at frequency above 10% or so. As you get down to 5%, 3%, 2%, even more and more, I predict, and stronger stuff is beginning to get discovered as you look at the data. So there's tons we will be learning about genes for, we still can only explain a portion of it. For some diseases, Crohn's disease, we might be able to explain about 30, 40%. For diabetes, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 or 9%. Tons still to go. But this kind of systematic program is beginning to roll in with sequencing lots more. And not just for these inherited diseases, I won't say much about it, but exactly the same thing. Well, it's not, it's not at all exactly the same thing. The analogous thing, 
can be done with cancers, where instead of looking at inherited common genetic variation, you can take the variation between a tumor in a patient and the normal cells of a patient and ask, how's the DNA changed? What mutations caused the tumor? And two years ago, the number of tumor genomes that had been sequenced and compared to the normal was approximately zero, in fact, exactly zero. Um, now, there's a couple hundred that have been done, and I predict within the next two years, it will get easily into the many thousands and go on beyond that. And we'll start seeing catalogs explode like that as well about genes involved in cancers. Now, I'm going to take a couple of minutes. I'm going to probably go on for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes or so, um, and just describe a couple of other kinds of maps you can build because they're fun. And then I'll stop and take questions. I talked a little bit about evolution and what it conserves, how evolution has conserved things over 100 million years across all mammals. Well, it's not all about things staying the same. It's change, too. Things sometimes move very rapidly in evolution, and maps of rapid evolution can tell stories as well. Here we go. Maps of rapid evolution. Mapping recent human evolution. So it turns out humans evolve. And you can watch them evolving. Darwin, natural selection. Darwin, the descent of man. First really gorgeous example of seeing the footprint of evolution in the human species. J.B.S. Haldane, the famous biologist J.B.S. Haldane, who observed that all sorts of red blood cell diseases, like sickle cell anemia, were particularly common in places that had malaria. And he said, I bet these diseases are protective against malaria, and they have evolved to high frequencies to protect against malaria. There's positive selection that has swept some genetic variation up because it does something good in some environment. Well, a couple of other examples. Lactose tolerance. Turns out most Northern Europeans can drink milk as adults, but most people in the world can't. The people who can drink milk as adults are largely East Africans and Northern Europeans, namely the folks who keep cows. Uh, it's pretty clear a mutation arose, we actually know it now, independently, one in Europe, one in East Africa, that lets you continue to have your enzyme that breaks down lactose as an adult. Normally it shuts off after weaning, because what do you need with it? Most mammals don't have milk after weaning. But uh, that's another example. And in fact, but you know, that's two, three examples. How much has evolution been shaping our genome? Just in the last 5,000 years or 10,000 years, just since civilization, how much has been going on in our genome? Could we tell? Yes, if we build a map. Let me describe the map that tells us what's been going on in our genome in the last five or 10,000 years, and it's pretty simple. Uh, you know, if some gene is not useful to you, mutation occurs in the gene, sorry, if some mutation is not useful to you, it might occur, you know, in the next generation, the next, you know, it goes up, it goes down in its frequency, no big deal, some mutation occurs. But if something's useful to you, here, some red mutation occurs, this is useful to you, 
it leave, lets you leave more offspring because you're resistant to malaria or you can drink milk or whatever. You leave more offspring, more offspring, more offspring. And very rapidly, that gene rises to high frequency. Can you tell that a gene rose to high frequency quickly? Yes, and here's the clue. It turns out that when a new mutation arises on one particular chromosome, on one particular Tuesday, this new mutation arises, it's on just that chromosome. And when you pass it on to the children, the children who get that mutation get all the other genetic variations nearby. And then over the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, genetic recombination occurs and the stuff that's at some distance starts recombining and isn't correlated anymore. And if you wait long enough, genetic recombination, genetic recombination, only the stuff that's very close by is still correlated with the mutation. But suppose there was a mutation that was under strong positive selection. It swept to high frequency very quickly. It would do so so quickly that genetic recombination would not have time to break down the long-range correlation. So it turns out there's a smoking gun. Anything that's at high frequency that has very long-range correlation with other genetic variants has to have moved to high frequency very quickly. Trust me, there are a lot of details under that, but it can be done right. That's a smoking gun you can use to find where evolution has recently been at work in the human genome. And to make a long story short, using the data for the HapMap, 300 regions have been found in the past couple of years where evolution has been doing strong positive selection in our species. And really excitingly to me, in the last year and a half, new methods have come along that let you pinpoint it with great precision to figure out which genes they are. And I'll just give you an example. Here was a spot on chromosome number 15 where this signal, whatever that signal is, I won't go into it, tells you something's going on. You can kind of see it, something goes up there, but it's hard to, to figure out exactly. New method, with the new method, you can pin it down exactly. Again, I won't tell you, but it's beautiful work of a, of a, of a professor now at Harvard, former postdoc of mine, Pardee Sabeti. And you zoom in on that spot, and you see in the protein there's a particular change, and it is a protein that affects skin pigment. This was a mutation selected in Europeans affecting skin pigment, and we're pretty sure we know that that's right. But these 300, you start going through them, and you see things like this. One spot up there affecting a protein in a particular gene, and it affects something having to do with hair and sweat, and it's found in Asians, and it's correlated with thickness of hair in Japanese, and yada, 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 and what that has to do exactly for sex, I don't know, but this is clearly the thing that was under selection. Something to do with hair and sweat glands in Asians. In Africa, bingo, you can see the spot right there. Now with high precision, a gene that's involved in immune systems. And again, I won't go into exactly, but, and it's correlated with certain things. It's a, you can pick this out. Here's, here's sort of what's going on. This is the picture that we had about three years ago of where to look for, where the selection was. Very clear things were going on. This is what it now looks like, is like that. And it's pinned down to gene, 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 gene. In many cases, to individual change in that gene. And there's a long list now of what evolution has been most interested in doing in tinkering in European populations, Asian populations, African populations, whole population, et cetera. And you can read that history out. And what's it interested in? Well, you can start looking at the list. Infectious disease. 
a lot of these genes clearly are related to infectious disease. That's been one of the big shapers of the human genome. But also skin color. A lot of these things related to skin color. Sensory perception. Not entirely sure what it's about. Immune-related genes. Homeostasis and metabolism, et cetera. So you can read those things out. All right. So I've been telling you about maps. I'll tell you one more last map, and then we'll stop. I've been telling you about maps, the whole sequence, maps to find find rare genetic diseases and maps to find the genes and the, and, and the non-coding bits that evolution cares about and the variation to find the common diseases and the epigenomic stuff that sits on top of it. And the other. All of this has given you this picture of the human genome as a long line. Every time I draw the human genome, it's this long line with things on it. I'm drawing my map as a line. The human genome doesn't actually live as a line. It's all folded up into your cells. It has a 3D structure. So for the last bit, can we make a map of the 3D structure of the human genome? And the answer is you can. And so I'll close with the 3D structure of the human genome. If you look up close and personal at the human genome, different parts of the genome, something over here, something over there has come back, and they're held together in some way by some protein that's got them you know, here, or they're off in some part. How could we make a map of who's near whom, of neighbors, near neighbors in the genome? Well, a graduate student in my lab came up with a really cute way to do it. And it, these are molecular biological details. Don't worry about it. What it means is if two things are nearby, cut and paste. And if they were nearby and you cut and you paste, you stuck them together. When you cut and you paste things that were near neighbors, then sequence them. The answer to most problems here now has become then sequence them. So you sequence them and you see, oh, I got a bit of, of chromosome 15 here and a bit of chromosome 15 here, but they've been stuck together. That means they ought to be next to each other. So anyway, this graduate student came up with this protocol, it took about two years to get this to work, and I raise it because he was a math undergraduate at Princeton, and that's my third Princeton connection, Erez Lieberman, who developed this in the lab, and he's quite a, quite a wonderful polymath. And to make a long story short, you can then build a chart of how close this bit is to that bit, and this bit is to that bit. I can build a big chart, which for every part of the genome, I'll write it here and here, and I can say if they're particularly close, I'll put them in red, and if they're a little distant, I'll put them in blue, and I can make the whole pattern of, of what it looks like, and it turns out, here's a secret, the genome is John Scottish. <laughs> it turns out the genome is Scottish. That is to say, this is the pattern of interactions across the genome. It's plaid. Um, look at this. What it means is there are essentially only two patterns. There's the this pattern and the this pattern. And you see this pattern here reappears here and reappears here. And if you think about it, if there's only two patterns, that means that at a very broad scale, there are only two neighborhoods of how the genome hangs out. There's the red neighborhood, and guys in the red neighborhood hang out with each other. And there's the blue neighborhood, and the guys in the blue neighborhood hang out with each other. And that's kind of it. Now, there's finer structure, but I'm not going to go into it. What are those neighborhoods? Actually, this is just one chromosome, chromosome 14, but it turns out it's not just special chromosome 14. All the chromosomes show, all the chromosomes are Scottish, right? They're all plaid. Um, 
it turns out that the red bits correspond to closed regions of the genome where the genes are closed for business. The blue regions to open regions of the genome where the genes are open for business. And you can tell that the red bits are actually closer to each other and the blue bits are further by various ways of seeing all this. And you can kind of pick this all out. You can even go further than that. You can start asking the question, if I take two bits of the genome that are this far apart, what's the likelihood they're nearby? What if they're this far apart, what's the likelihood? So for the, the high school students, there'll be a function, f of x, where f is the probability of how close they are, and x is how far apart they are. So two things that are x apart, how, how often are they near each other, okay? For everybody else, don't worry about that. And you can compute. You can compute that, and you know, it turns out to be very interesting. Here's the unfolded genome. I've colored it in a rainbow. There has been for the last 20 years an understanding that the way the 3D structure of the human genome folds up is like any other polymer, which is into something called an equilibrium globule. This means something to people who do polymer chemistry. It's folded up like this into an equilibrium globule. Equilibrium globule, hmm, that's a distinctive kind of structure. And it has a certain property that tells you how often two points at distance x are nearby each other. And it has a certain scaling law. And the scaling law has an exponent, whatever that means, of 1.5. You could test that from the data. And you check it, and it's nowhere near 1.5 which means that isn't how the genome folds at all. It can't. It's like way off. So there was another paper about 20 years ago which suggested another way the genome could fold. So this one said 1.5. Don't worry exactly what it means. Trust me, there's a number. And we observe 1.08, which is not 1.5. This other way is a beautiful, elegant way that, for reasons I don't know, got ignored. I know why, because it's not an equilibrium structure. It's an out-of-equilibrium structure, and it's called a fractal. It's a fractal globule, and no one had ever computed its slope, but Eris did, and it's about 1.08. It looks like the genome folds up as a fractal. Fractals are things that collapse and then collapse and collapse and collapse on themselves. In fact, instead of my doing it with my hands, let me, let me make you a movie of a, there we go. There's the genome coming together. And what you can see is that the green bits tend to stay near each other. And the red bits are near each other. Whereas in that equilibrium globule, they're all kind of messed up with each other. The great thing is here, everything collapses locally and locally and locally and locally. And what's good about that is you don't get yourself all tangled up. If I want to get any bit of genome, I give a tug on it and it comes out. It's not in a knot. What a sensible way to pack a genome. And in fact, the data looked like the genome is really packed as a fractal. All right, so now I've told you, and I promised you you weren't going to understand all of it, but oh well. Um, I've told you that it's all about maps. We have this monstrously big molecule, two trillion Daltons, three billion letters. And we want to understand what it does. And the last 20 years, indeed, going back to David's first proposal, 1980, the last 30 years, have been recognizing all the different ways you could map it. 
You can map it to find disease. You can map it to find functions in the genome. You can map it to study evolution. You can map it to study 3D structure. You can map it to all sorts of things. And with the students now and with the power of molecular technologies and sequencing and this 100,000-fold decrease in cost, I'm quite confident that the high school students here from Princeton High School will, within six years or something like that, be inventing many more ways to make new kinds of maps to discover other kinds of things in the genome that we hadn't even imagined are there. The real secret about the human genome is how many secrets there still are in the human genome. That's what's cool for the students who are here, that, that we have just barely begun to understand what's in there. So I've told you about a lot of stuff with maps, and I've told you about Princeton connections. The first, well, actually, in fairness, that's me. I'm an undergraduate. The second, that's David. The third, that's Shirley. The fourth, my student, Erez Lieberman, and his 3D folding map of the genome. I need a fifth. Ah, yes, the fifth. Whoops, the fifth. The fifth is, in particular, uh, my daughter, who is a senior graduating from Princeton. And she, of course, needs a connection to this talk. And so I point out that the cover of Nature from 2001 with the human genome has more than 1,000 people's faces from which this double helix is made. And for Jessica's friends who are here today, they can all look through the cover and find where Jessica's picture is. <laughs> because it is. It's a pleasure to talk to you about the secret to the human genome.